0: Wonderful time of worship I want to invite you if you have a Bible with you today to go ahead and grab it and let me hear your pages turning to the Gospel of John in the 20th chapter maybe you're using your phone or a tablet let me hear that clicking noise as you go to the Gospel of John and the 20th chapter and just hold that ready for just a moment while you're turning there I want to just share a personal request related to the video that you just saw about this new message series that begins next weekend called truth over trend and I got a couple of things I want to ask you to do first First of all, I just want to ask you to pray for God's blessing and God's voice in each message. I know many of you have been praying for me for a long time because uh, I shared the truth about this upcoming message series uh, some time ago and I appreciate that. But I pray that I hope that everyone would pray uh, that we would hear God's voice in each message. I'm going to be talking about some uh, as you just saw very real things that are happening in our world and happening in our culture today and we need to hear God's voice about those things. We hear man Voice every day. Somebody say amen to that. We need to hear God's voice about those things. And the second thing I want to ask you to do is to just be here, to make it a priority to be here. We live in difficult times, we're surrounded by difficult issues so I want you to be here. If you think the things I'm going to talk about over the course of the next four weeks don't relate to you, then quite honestly, you're making a mistake. I would even go so far as to say you're making a foolish mistake because we all need to have a genuine biblical perspective on the issue of gender identity and same-sex relationships and the deconstruction of faith. And we all need to have the courage to recognize those moments and those opportunities to be courageous and to speak up for biblical truth, so I wanna ask you to make it a priority for you and your family. Well, I've got a lot to share with you today, so we're not gonna waste any time. If you've got your Bibles open to John chapter 20 and you're able, I'm gonna ask you to stand with me for the reading of the scripture today. If you're a guest with us again today, I wanna let you know how Great joy it is for us to welcome you into our service. Uh, we make the public reading of Scripture a part of our service every single week, and because we have such reverence and respect for God's Word, we stand together when we do it. Our text this weekend is John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. You follow along as I read from my NIV Bible. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, Why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet returned to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask that God would bless the reading and the hearing of his word. All of us have moments in our lives that we will never forget. Even saying that probably causes you or will cause you to think about some of those moments in your life. One of those moments for me was the very first time I traveled to the Holy Land. It was back in 2014 and about 60 of you and maybe some of you are in this service went with me. It was a trip as you will remember if you were there that was filled with one incredible experience after another but there was one thing that stood out to me above all the rest I'm going to put some words of Scripture on the screen from John chapter 19, verses 41 and 42, as I kind of set the stage to share that experience. In these verses, John writes, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid, and because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, I put those two verses up on the screen because what they tell us is that the site of Jesus' crucifixion and the site of his burial were very close. I'm talking about in physical proximity, they were very close. And you see that when you go to the Holy Land and you visit the two traditional sites for the crucifixion and the resurrection. The first one is called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's located in the northwest quarter of the old city of Jerusalem. The second one is known as Gordon's Calvary, and it's located north of Jerusalem next to a rocky outcrop known as Skull Hill. All four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say that Jesus was crucified at a place called Golgotha, which literally means the place of the skull. Now, I'll tell you that after visiting the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in 2014, I've never been back. I went back in 2017, I went back in 2019, but I've never been back to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And honestly, it's really more of a personal preference than anything else. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre is a very busy place. It's owned by the Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Armenian Apostolic Church. And so all three churches hold services there daily. in addition to that, there are thousands of people who visit there, thousands of pilgrims who come from all over the world to be there, and they're involved in a variety of very distracting worship activities. And it was just too busy for me. I, I, I got no genuine sense of, for lack of a better word, reverence while I was there. Again, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. In contrast to that, Gordon's Calvary is an incredibly peaceful place. As I mentioned, it's located north of Jerusalem next to this rocky outcropping known as Skull Hill. And it's called Gordon's Calvary because a British man named Major General Charles Gordon visited Jerusalem in 1883 and became a strong proponent of that being the site of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection primarily because of its proximity to this rock outcropping and also because of the discovery of garden tombs below. Now it's impossible to know if either one of the sites, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre or Gordon's Calvary are actually the literal sites for the crucifixion and resurrection and there are positive and negative things related to both of their authenticity but visiting Gordon's Calvary for the first time to me was absolutely unforgettable because it was just so peaceful. I'm gonna show you some pictures There's, it's located in a very busy part of of, uh, the old city of Jerusalem and there's just a sign outside the entrance and then uh, I think the next picture, there's a line of folks that were on my last trip in 2019 waiting to go into uh, the empty tomb. There's a group group of folks that are being uh, given some information by our tour guide and there's me showing off my selfie skills (laughs) looking down there. When I went in 2019, I had the privilege of taking my son and daughter-in-law and my daughter and my son-in-law with me, and uh, that was a great joy. And then, this is not from 2019, but I had to put a picture of me and my pretty wife up there. She, She didn't get to go in 2019 because she stayed home and watched the grandkids, and so there we are in 2017. It is a beautiful, peaceful, incredible place. And... Because Gordon's Calvary is owned by a Protestant non-denominational charitable trust in the UK called the Garden Tomb Association, we've always had a Protestant guide with us when we've gone to visit there, to visit the Garden Tomb there. And a part of the guide, the guided tour is our guide actually literally sharing a gospel presentation that reminds us that Jesus is our only hope of salvation. Going back to when I went there in 2014, the first time, we always have a time of communion and I'll never forget that moment. There was just a little mist that had begun to fall as we were seated outside the garden tomb and we passed the elements and we took the Lord's Supper together and it left a lasting impression on me and I share that with you simply because I thought about that so much as I sat down to write this message because the setting for what we're talking about in John chapter 20 is the garden tomb. John writes that early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb where Jesus had been buried. Now, we know that there were other women who went to the tomb besides Mary Magdalene that day because uh, we learned that from similar accounts of the same event in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John's focus as he writes his gospel is on Mary Magdalene because next to the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene was the most prominent woman in Jesus' life. She came from a small fishing village called Magdala off the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Luke chapter eight and verse two tells us that when she first met Jesus, Jesus cast seven demons out of her. Can you imagine the hell that she lived in being possessed by seven separate demons? And so the moment Jesus cast out those demons... Her life was changed and she became a devoted follower and she followed him closely all the way to the end of his life. John 19, 25 tells us that she was one of the three women that were there at the cross, at the foot of the cross, watching Jesus die. All four gospels mention that she went to the garden tomb early that Sunday morning with spices to anoint Jesus's body. But John tells us that when she got there, she discovered that the sealed tomb was empty. The stone had been moved and the tomb was empty. And so just as we read, she immediately ran to the disciples. She ran to Peter and another disciple that's not identified by name, but virtually all Bible scholars believe was John, who is the author of this gospel, the author of this story. And she says to them in John chapter 20 and verse two, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. And so Peter and John start running to the tomb because John was faster, probably younger, than Peter. He got there first. But as John chapter 20 and verse 5 says, when he got there, he didn't go into the tomb right away. Instead, he just bent over and looked inside and saw the linen strips, or in other words, Jesus's grave clothes lying there inside the tomb. And so one of the first things that stands out to me is there's a contrast here between Jesus's resurrection and an event that happened earlier in the gospel of John in John 11, where Jesus rose a man named Lazarus from the dead. Our high school pastor, Matt Pineda, who was out here to do communion meditation just a while ago, preached a message message about this uh, uh, several weeks ago. We went through a seven-week sermon series called I Am Jesus, and we looked at the different I Am statements Jesus makes in the Gospel of John in John chapter 11, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, and he preached a great message about that that day. But one of the things we notice is that when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, he walked out of the tomb wearing his grave clothes. But as we see this in John chapter 20, we see that somehow Jesus' body was able to pass through the grave clothes because they were laying there in that empty tomb. So John gets there first. He just looks in. Peter finally gets there and goes immediately into the tomb. And once he does that, John enters the tomb as well. And I want you to notice what our text said next in the very first part of John chapter 20 and verse eight. John writes this about himself. He writes, he saw And believed. Then both Peter and John leave the tomb and go back to their homes, but Mary stands outside of the tomb weeping. Here's what I want to do with the few minutes that I have left with you this morning I want to to share a message that I'm just simply calling resurrection faith, and I want to use these three eyewitnesses to the resurrection as examples of three different kinds of faith that we often bring to the resurrection of Jesus, and I wanna make some applications for each. If you're someone who likes to take notes, then I want you to write down next to number one, the first kind of faith, and we'll just call it an uncomplicated faith. Write that down somewhere. An uncomplicated faith, and I'm using those words to describe John, who is the author of the text that we read. When it came to the resurrection, he had an uncomplicated faith. But before we talk about that, let's just pause for a moment and acknowledge how special it would have been to have a nickname like John did, to be known as the disciple Jesus loved. That's what he's called here. That's what he... That's how he identifies himself here in John chapter 20 and verse two. And I mentioned earlier, virtually every Bible scholar acknowledges that this was the apostle John and they believe that for good reason. Uh, Jesus had 12 disciples, as you know, but then he had three disciples of the 12 that were close to him and they were James and John and Peter. James and John were brothers. They are often identified in the gospels as the sons of Zebedee. And there are multiple times in the gospels when Jesus separated these three from the other 12 and took them with him for special events. A good example would be at the Transfiguration or at the Garden of Gethsemane. When we read about the Last Supper in John 13 and 14, we see that it was John who was sitting next to Jesus. When Jesus was on the cross, John was there. And we know that because that's a detail John includes about himself in his gospel. And when Jesus from the cross saw John standing near his mother Mary, he said in John 19, verses 26 and 27, dear woman, here is your son. And then to John, he said, here is your mother. I don't know if you have a nickname, but I'm confident today it would pale in comparison to the disciple that Jesus loved. So Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb, she finds it empty, she runs to tell Peter and John, who run to the tomb themselves. John gets there first, he doesn't go in, he just looks in and sees Jesus' grave closed. Peter arrives, he goes in, John follows, and once he's inside, John writes these words about himself. He saw and believed. He didn't need to see the nail scars in Jesus' hands like Thomas did later in John chapter 20. He didn't need to put his hand where a Roman soldier had thrust a spear into Jesus' side while he was hanging on the cross like Thomas did. A story we read about later in John chapter 20. He didn't need anything to believe. The tomb was empty. Jesus' grave clothes had been abandoned. He saw and he believed. John didn't run to the tomb that day believing Jesus had risen from the dead because the disciples, they didn't understand the reality of the resurrection, even though Jesus had told them multiple times it would happen. He didn't need to hear an angel make an announcement. He saw and believed because John had an uncomplicated faith. And there are a lot of disciples like that today. In fact, I'm confident that there are several of you who are listening to me right now who could probably be described in the same way. You have an uncomplicated faith. I'll be honest with you and tell you that that describes me. I've always had an uncomplicated faith in my life. I'm not saying that in a, in a bold, bragging kind of way, but just in a matter-of-fact way. I've always had an uncomplicated faith. I can't remember a single time in my life when I didn't believe in Jesus. And I wanted to surrender my life to him in faith and trust when I was very young. In fact, my mother, when I told my mother when I was a boy that I wanted to become a Christian, she made me wait a year just to make sure that I was old enough to understand the significance of that decision. And I'm sure there are probably many of you who would say the same thing. And while I have had questions, I'll be honest, I've had questions at times in my life about how God chooses to exercise his sovereignty in the world, I've never struggled with my faith. And I'm sure, again, many of you could say the same thing. If I said, he is risen, I know many of you, without hesitation, would say, he is risen indeed. You have an uncomplicated faith. (laughs) Faith in Jesus is not difficult for you. And I want to tell you, if that describes you then you don't have to be ashamed of that. That doesn't mean you're lacking in depth. That doesn't mean you're naive about the brokenness of the world. That doesn't mean you're uninformed or you're shallow. I would say it means you're blessed because you don't labor or struggle with matters of faith. And you should rejoice in that I mentioned a little bit that a little bit later in John chapter 20 read the story about, about uh, Jesus appearing to the disciples, but one of the disciples thomas wasn 't there. this is the post resurrection appearance and when Thomas showed up, they said, "This is what happened he said i won 't believe it unless I see it for myself, basically And so Jesus comes back and he appears, and Thomas is there and he says, "See the nail scars in my hands and he shows him the spear uh, scar in his side, and Thomas immediately falls on his knees and believes and then Jesus says in John 20, 29, because you have seen me, you have believed. But then he says this to everyone who has uncomplicated faith. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so the first kind of faith we see at the empty tomb is an uncomplicated faith. Now right down next to number two somewhere, the second kind of faith. And in contrast to John's uncomplicated faith, we'll talk about Peter who had a complicated faith. Number two is complicated faith. He shows us that all, not all faith is uncomplicated because when John writes his account of this event, he says about himself, he saw and believed." but he doesn't write anything similar to that about Peter. In fact, all he writes about Peter is that he went in, saw the tomb was empty, saw the abandoned grave clothes, and then John says in his gospel that he simply went... Back home. Now, I'll be honest with you and tell you that I'm going to use what I'm simply going to call some educated conjecture here and tell you that Peter had a complicated faith because he didn't just go back home. He went home uncertain and confused about what he had seen, or maybe I should say about what he had not seen. Peter walked away scratching his head, Peter walked away not knowing what to think. And the reason I say this is educated conjecture is because of what we read about this same event in Luke's account of the resurrection. Because in Luke chapter 24 and verse 12, this is what he writes about Peter after having seen the empty tomb. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Now, the obvious understanding of that is he went away wondering what in the world could be going on, how in the world is it that Jesus' body is not in this tomb? We saw him die. What's going on here? How could his grave clothes be there without his body being inside? What explanation could there be for all of this? And you know, that's the same reaction a lot of people have to the resurrection still today. Maybe that describes some of you, some of you who are here in this room, some of you who are listening to me online. You come to an Easter service like this and you hear the story of the resurrection, maybe you even consider some evidence for the resurrection, and yet at the same time, you still have your questions and you still have your doubts and you still have your concerns. You might look around a room like this and think to yourself, am I the only one here who isn't completely convinced? It's not that you're antagonistic about the story. You don't want to debate the validity of the resurrection with me or anyone else. We just have questions. I believe that describes Peter on that Sunday morning, even though, again, I said this earlier, if you go back and you look at the life of Jesus in the Gospels, there were multiple times when Jesus told the disciples that he was actually going to rise from the dead. In fact, one of those times involved Peter directly because Jesus talked about needing to go to Jerusalem where he was going to suffer at the hands of the religious leaders, where he was going to die, he was going to be crucified, he was going to rise from the dead, and all Peter heard was the suffering at the hands of the religious leaders, and you probably remember this story, he pulls Jesus aside and says, hey, Jesus, that is never going to Happen to you. I am never going to let that happen to you. And you remember what Jesus said to him? He said, Get behind me, Satan. Even though he heard Jesus talk about this, he still had his questions and he still had his doubts and he still had his concerns. But you have to consider a couple of things about Peter. First of all, Peter was, he was. I didn't know exactly how to say this, so I just wrote it like this. Peter was a man's man. Let's think of him like that. Before he met Jesus, he lived in the world of fishermen, which means he was rough around the edges because that's the way fishermen were in Jesus' day. In fact, I saw a T-shirt the other day that I thought uh, Peter would probably wear if he had access to it in ancient days. It said, I love Jesus, but I cuss a little. <laughs> that would probably be a good description of Peter. And probably some of you, and maybe even sometimes me. And so Peter was someone who lived a hard and an independent life. That's the first thing. But here's the second thing Peter also loved Jesus. And because of that, if you're familiar with the way Peter's story unfolds in the Gospels, you know that he kind of vacillated back and forth between those two things, vacillated back and forth in this this hard, strong, independent life, and this man who at the same time really loved Jesus. And when he went to the empty tomb that day, he had to be especially mindful of that because his last experience with Jesus, if you remember, was not a good one for him because his last experience was with Jesus was when Jesus was at the most vulnerable moment of his life Peter denied even knowing him not once not twice but three times, which is exactly what Jesus had said was going to happen right after Peter said these words that are recorded in Matthew 26. Peter boasted and said to Jesus, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And yet, when push came to shove, three different times, when Jesus was at his most vulnerable, Peter denied him. And don't you know that ever since he spoke those words, friends, don't you know that he had been consumed with the guilt and the brokenness of his life? So here he is. He's inside this empty tomb. He's looking at the evidence, the unmistakable evidence of Jesus' resurrection, and yet he walks away confused because he had a complicated faith. And if that describes you today for whatever reason, I mean honestly, if that describes you today for whatever reason, then here is my word to you, the resurrected Jesus understands that. He understands that you can have a complicated faith with regard to who he is and the validity of his resurrection from the dead. And not only does he understand that, he also wants you to know that even with your questions and even with your doubts and even with your confusion, he rose from the dead for you. And we know that because of what Mark writes in his gospel about Jesus' resurrection. Uh, you, you probably, if you're a student of the Bible on any level, you probably know that the four gospels, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all give different accounts uh, in some ways of Jesus' resurrection, but they're different for a couple of different reasons. Uh, first, they're different because there are four separate eyewitness accounts to the same event, and while the Bible is inspired in that it was written by God, it's also written through men, and each account is focused on a different aspect of the resurrection. I don't imagine four of you could leave this service today, go home, and somebody ask you, how was. The a sermon and four of you would say the exact same thing it was great <laughs> second each one of the gospels has a different theme a different focus and we don't have time to go into that into great detail today but the gospel accounts can be trusted and we look at them in harmony they can be trusted And when Mark wrote his gospel account of the resurrection, in Mark chapter 16, he tells of an angel who spoke to the women at the empty tomb, and after telling them not to be afraid and not to be alarmed, he told them that Jesus had risen from the dead. Then look at these words on the screen from Mark 16, 7. The angel specifically says, but go tell his disciples and Peter. Everyone say and Peter. And Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Don't miss that. Tell the disciples and Peter And the meaning is simple. Jesus rose from the dead for Peter with all of his faults and all of his flaws and all of his failures and all of his questions and all of his doubts and all of his concern. Peter may have walked away from that empty tomb filled with confusion, but after Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't remain that way After he encountered the resurrected Jesus, he didn't remain that way. In fact, here's some homework for you today. Go home and read John chapter 21 sometime today and see the story of how Jesus renews Peter's call because Jesus rose from the dead for Peter along with everyone else, even though Peter had his faults and his flaws and his failures. When I think about Peter, I think about him waking up on that first Easter morning filled with guilt and filled with self-condemnation for how he had failed Jesus. And the message that was probably echoing in his head was there's no way God could love you after what you did. There's no way God could use you or have a plan for you after what you did. You failed when God needed you the most. But one of the reasons why Jesus rose from the dead was to say that our failures, whatever they might be, will not be final. They do not have to be final. I have one son, most of you know that, most of you know my son, Andrew. And if I sent my one son to people to tell them how much I loved them, and they failed him, and they hurt him the way Peter did Jesus, the absolute last thing I would ever think about doing would be sending him back to those same people. And yet that's exactly what God did with Jesus when he rose from the dead. He sent him back for all the Peters of the world. Because the resurrection teaches us that your failure whatever it might be does not have to be final. Mark 16:7 the angel said, but go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So if you find yourself like Peter today, and it's okay. I'm, glad, I'm so glad you're here. But if you find yourself with questions and doubts and concerns and some confusion about the resurrection, or if you're uncertain that the resurrection even applies to you because of something you've done in your life, some failure or mistake in your life, then learn from Peter because the resurrection ended up saving his life and the resurrection can save your life as well, no matter how complicated your faith might be. Well, there was a third eyewitness we need to talk about and we'll do this quickly, that's Mary Magdalene. And if John had an uncomplicated faith, he saw and believed, and if Peter had a complicated faith, he went away confused. The only way we could describe Mary Magdalene's faith is that she had a grieving faith. She had a grieving faith. I can't think of a better way to describe Mary Magdalene than to say that she was a woman who was deeply, deeply devoted to Jesus. Why shouldn't she be? We already talked about how she met Jesus and Jesus cast seven demons out of her. He completely changed her life and as a result, she became one of his most devoted followers. And because of that, she followed him and she ministered to him all the way to the end, she was at the cross watching him die. And on the first day of the week, following his crucifixion, she was at the tomb to anoint his body. She had no idea how to get in. How, I mean, what, did, what could she have been thinking? How was she and the other women with her going to roll that stone away or anything? But none of that mattered to her. The only thing that mattered to her was that she was there where Jesus was. And when she found the stone moved and the tomb empty, she became overwhelmed with grief. She didn't understand the reality of what happened. She didn't understand that Jesus had risen from the dead, and she didn't understand it because of guilt or doubt like Peter. She didn't understand it because in the moment she was so filled with grief. And I'm wondering if there's anybody listening to me like that today. We had this incredible time of praise and worship, celebrating the reality of the risen Savior, but... You know, you're here and you're a part of that, but you just don't quite get it. It doesn't really penetrate your heart because you're carrying around with you such a heavy load of grief. And maybe it's there because you've lost a loved one. Maybe you lost someone precious to you, someone who was maybe in many ways your entire life. Maybe it's because you're overwhelmed with pain today. Maybe you've lost a friendship, maybe you've lost a job, maybe you've lost a dream, maybe you've lost your health, maybe you've lost your hope. And you're here to celebrate the resurrection, but you can't get past your grief. That's the way Mary Magdalene was that morning. She'd suffered the pain of watching Jesus die, but she still shows up at the tomb. She knows exactly where it is to do the only thing left for her to do, but when she finds it empty, after telling Peter and John, all she can do is cry. Even when she looks in the tomb and she sees two angels who say, woman, why are you crying? She doesn't have the ability to recognize them for who they are or what they represent because she's too overcome by her grief. And so she says, the only thing that makes sense to her in the moment, they have taken my Lord away. Notice she says, my Lord, they've taken my Lord away and I don't know where they have put him. Then John 20, 14 says she turns around and Jesus is standing there, but she doesn't realize it was Jesus, why? Why does she not see Jesus in that moment? Because she's overwhelmed with her grief. And so he says to her in verse 15, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you were looking for? And she thinks he's the gardener. And so she says, sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. How could she ever do that on her own? She's just filled with grief. But then you read verse 16 where Jesus speaks her name. He says, Mary. And she knows it's him and she cries out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. It wasn't until he said her name, it wasn't until she heard him speak her name that she was able to move past her grief and see Jesus. To see that he was still there for her like he had always been there. Several weeks ago, I mentioned earlier that we spent seven weeks in a message series called I Am Jesus, looking at the seven different I Am statements Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep. In another part of John 10, as he's talking about the reality of what a good shepherd looks like, he says that a good shepherd calls his sheep by name. And that's what Jesus did in the garden tomb. He said, Mary, and so I want you to listen to me. If you're struggling today to see and understand the significance and the joy of what we're celebrating this weekend because of your grief, whatever the source might be, then I want you just to know two things. That Jesus is actually standing right there with you. Just like he was with Mary Magdalene in the garden. And while you might not immediately recognize him, he's there. And number two, he's calling your name because he knows your name. He knows everything about your life. And this is not just true for women who are grieving. This is true for men who are grieving as well. It's true for all of us. And just like he had a message for Mary Magdalene that helped move her past her grief, and we read that in John 20, verses 17 and 18. You can go back and look at that again. He'll have a message for you that can help you move past your grief. So here's my question for you as we close. What kind of faith did you bring to this resurrection service, this resurrection celebration today? An uncomplicated faith like John? You saw and believe. You're good. You don't struggle in these matters. A complicated faith like Peter? You've heard the story you've maybe even looked at the evidence but you still have concerns and doubts and questions a grieving faith like Mary Magdalene the significance of the event doesn't penetrate your heart because your heart is so overwhelmed with grief regardless of what kind of faith you're feeling this moment there are two things that i can tell you you can be sure of jesus is alive And Jesus loves you. Because he loves you, he sees you. He knows you. He has a plan for your life. And so in the end, it wasn't this way in the beginning, but in the end, Peter and Mary learned what John simply knew by faith. That the miracle of Jesus conquering death And rising from the dead is simply too good not to be true. Because it means that Jesus can overcome anything.